This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. Welcome, everybody, to the Authority Podcast on the B Podcast Network. If you're one of our regular listeners, thanks for joining us once again. If you're new to the show, thanks for being here. I'm really pleased today to have as my guest, Mark Miller. Mark is a business leader, best-selling author, and communicator. He started his Chick-fil-A career working as an hourly team member in 1977, and today he leads as Vice President of High Performance Leadership. Mark currently has over 1 million books in print in more than 25 languages, and his latest, which just was released, is called Culture Rules, the Leader's Guide to Creating the Ultimate Competitive Advantage. Mark, thanks so much for being here. Ross, it is great to be with you. Thanks for the opportunity. Oh, absolutely. I'm really looking forward to this. And even from our pre-show chat, I can tell there's so much to unpack here. I wanted to jump right into some of the research you conducted. And throughout this book, you and your team conducted personal research with more than 6,000 individuals. And you found that 71% of U.S. leaders believe culture is their most powerful tool to drive performance. But Enhancing culture was ranking about 11th on the priority list. It reminded me of something that we saw here in education about a decade ago, which is uh, potentially promising in this regard, which it was around social emotional learning at the time. And 97% of school leaders said it was very or somewhat important that they would be developing students' social emotional skills, but only maybe 30 to 40% had a clear plan of how they were doing it. And it took some time for that gap to be closed as they wrap their heads around the urgency and the practicality and all of that. So maybe that's promising here, but what did you find that explained the gap? What was kind of lagging there? Well, let me say that we did the research you just referenced. It was also representing 10 countries. We talked to senior leaders, mid-level leaders, and frontline employees. Mm -hmm. And honestly, we were not shocked at that first number, we assumed that leaders would say it was important. We were terrified that it was so low in their priorities. And then we began to try and figure out why is there this gap? By the way, there was nothing that ranked higher. It was rated as the number one tool to improve performance. Right. Nothing rated higher. And we found any number of things. I would say categorically, the first was busyness, complexity, competing priorities, what we call quicksand. And I actually mm -hmm. wrote about that in my last book about how to get out of the quicksand. It's a book on leadership effectiveness. And the quicksand is one of the primary contributing factors that's keeping leaders from working on what they know they should work on. Mm -hmm. So 
you got to get out of the quicksand. You're not thinking about culture when you're in quicksand. You're thinking about survival. Right. So, again, that, that's not the, the focus of our conversation today, but it was one of the big root causes. The other was the, the challenge of culture based on its complexity, the squishiness of it. We'd rather mm-hmm. say it's strategic, but it's an unseen force. And so what do you do with an unseen force? Thankfully, we know what those elemental components are, right? Culture is the cumulative effect of what people see, hear, experience, and believe. Who controls that? The greatest lever in an organization regarding what people see, hear, experience, and believe is the leader. Right. And so I feel pretty good about that. But my team was still a bit overwhelmed. It's a hard and complicated topic. And I want to honor that for all the people listening that are going, don't make this sound easy. No, no, I'm not trying to make it sound easy. It's really challenging. But what we did is said, we've got to help leaders close that gap, the knowing doing gap, if you will. And we decided that if we could simplify the topic without becoming simplistic, right? Mm -hmm. At that point, you lose. If you go too far on the simple curve, game over. If we could simplify the topic, make it actionable and applicable, we thought we could really add value to leaders around the world. One quick story about our journey there. It was not as, I'm going to make it sound easy here in the next few minutes. We worked for, wow, we worked for months and months. We probably worked well over a year trying to take all of this information. Okay, we now know what is universally true about healthy, vibrant cultures. And we know people aren't working on it and they need to work on it and they know they need to work on it. So it was like driving us crazy. And we actually found inspiration from the Navy SEALs. So stay with me. I know this audience today are primarily educators. Don't draw too close a parallel between you and the SEALs. That's not what I'm suggesting. But we did learn some things from the SEALs. Specifically, we were inspired when a few years ago, they wanted to document their mantra. And the first thing they wrote down is shoot, move, and communicate. Now, we spent time with SEALs over the years. In fact, we interview SEALs every chance we get because we're going to learn something. And they would be the first to tell you that's not all they need to know to be a SEAL. But it is what they need to survive to fight another day. And we then went to work and said, can we figure out the shoot, move, communicate of culture? Something that is directive, powerful, truth-based, and generates results. And that's the quest that the team has been on that ultimately led to the three culture rules that we're going to talk about today. Those rules, aspire, amplify, adapt, we're going to dig into each of them a little bit. But, you know, along those lines, when you talked about the three that the SEALs came up with, communicate is right in there, right in your bio, communicator. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, one of your roles across your career was actually starting the corporate communications unit at Chick-fil-A. I started the communications myself, right? So this is near and dear to our hearts. And with that aspire piece, which is where you're sharing those hopes and dreams for the culture and the leader is really setting out that vision. The first move is to decide and declare what you're trying to create. And I do want to follow on that through line because it's consistent here, which is that culture needs to be explicit. This is something I talk to companies about 
a lot is that you need to not only do the right things, but you need to tell people what you're doing. This is both internal and external. This is so that your team, your employees, your colleagues all understand where they're leading. And it also filters out to your customers, to your community. Ultimately, your culture is what people say it is. Right? And so the best way to make sure that they're saying what you want them to say is to be telling them what you're working toward. You have to create that awareness, that understanding so they can see, okay, yes, all right, now I understand. Now I see what they're doing. And I've certainly observed in, in my work, you know, you, you may have observed this in your research, there's some disconnect here too, right? Where there's people who you would say otherwise, okay, they're good leaders in a lot of ways. They have strong values. They certainly have an idea of where they want to be going. They lead with integrity. They care about their employees and their company, but they're not communicating this the way they need to really establish it. Is there a, a holdup where there's some leaders that are almost wishing for culture or are they hoping that the culture is going to follow other results, right? Well, if we do good work and we make a lot of money, then we'll have a good culture. What have you kind of seen and observed as far as when that piece of really declaring it, right? And getting it out there and talking about it is missing from a company that otherwise has a pretty good foundation. Two things come to mind. One, hope is not a strategy. Hope is a good thing, but it is not a strategy. Right. And so I usually want to ask a few more questions if somebody's hoping that X is going to happen or Y is going to happen or Z is going to happen because I'm not betting on it. So that's the first thing I'd say. The other thing I'd say, I'm really not trying to throw rocks here, but much of that description you gave was not a leader. Mm -hmm. It was a description of a good neighbor. Right. It's like leader leaders, men and women who can't tell people where they're going or what they're trying to accomplish, or what they're trying to become, or why it matters, I have to at least call into question, are they leading? Because I believe fundamentally, the leader's job is to create and sustain progress, right? To move mm -hmm. people and organizations to a preferred future. It's real hard to move people in mass to a place that you can't articulate. Right. And so I would really really want to question, why wouldn't a leader tell people? Now, I, I will quickly add, there are a couple of reasons. One is they don't know. And so I think they have to make a really high priority of figuring that out. Two, they may not know how to get there. And I don't think that's bad if they'll own that and say, guess what? We get to figure it out. Some leaders put too much of a burden on themselves. I've got to know where we're going and how we're going to get there and when we're going to get there and how we're going to pay for it. And you can't know all that. And so sometimes it's that absence of that level of clarity and certainty that will paralyze a leader. But what they're doing is they're forfeiting their own leadership and they're not rallying the people around them to help them go to that place. And then ultimately, when we're talking about culture, and you mentioned this pre-show, you can't create a culture that others aren't helping you create. Well, right. if you can't articulate it, then they don't know what to help you build. And so you're really, really, I would argue, tying both hands behind your back as a leader if you can't tell people where you're trying to go. Yeah. And so much of that speaks to the difference between leader as a, I have a certain title. So I'm, I was named the leader of this organization versus I am leading, right? I am acting as a leader, which certainly when we're talking about 
the company culture, the organizational culture of an entire organization, yeah, it's important that you sort of are in certain roles as well, although everybody leads in developing that culture. But I think that's the way you even write in the book, okay, this is this mystery of why some folks don't really do this. Why don't they talk about the culture they're trying to create? And it's sometimes they don't know. Sometimes they're just not leading. (laughs) They're just not doing it. And I love the way that you describe the big idea, right? We have these three rules, which of course are the structure of the book, but the big idea, which is repeated over and over is that leaders animate culture. Love the word animate here, right? Because that's, I mean, when I think about what is my mission and my purpose and the thing that motivates me, it's the thing that animates me. It brings me to life. It's not just an energizer or a motivator, but it's truly the thing that makes the difference between you just not really feeling like, you know, it's part of what you want to do at all. And that connects so much to the ethos, the spirit, and that word spirit, the life, I think it represents something that's very, it's different from traditional ways that people may map out how a culture or how norms and procedures or anything are created, meaning it's not top down not bottom up. It's something else. The culture, the pieces of the culture are almost all around us. And then you have to come in and bring them to life. And then there, but I'm wondering your perspective on how you would describe that piece of it and that, that process really of bringing it to life, animating and that collaboration and the fact that it, it happens in such a unique way. I think the entire process, the entire journey that we're going to talk about today are the three rules that we believe enable a leader to animate culture. Because you may wish or hope for a better culture, but there are three rules. Mm -hmm. And that is the engaging with and playing by those rules. If the game is culture craft, playing by those rules enables you to play well and to win. Mm -hmm. And so that is, in fact, how leaders animate culture. They do the three things we're talking about today. Perfect. So let's talk about the rules. Aspire, amplify, adapt. Give us a little background because we'll touch on each of them, how you're defining them and how you and the team really decided on these as the terms. Because of course, there's similar words you could have used, but there's intentionality behind why these are the ones that really capture what you want to say. We've already talked a little bit about to aspire is to share your hopes and dreams. And we, we felt compelled, even though that doesn't feel insightful to many people, it probably wasn't insightful to us, but mm-hmm. we encountered so many leaders who can't do that. And then we encountered so many leaders who have created great cultures, and that's where they began. And so I tell people, it's not the most important of the three rules, but it's first among equal for some of the reasons we're talking about, it's really hard. I would actually say it's impossible to intentionally and strategically attempt to create something you can't articulate. And we've already talked about that you need people to help you. Well, help you what? And so I would say the test at the end of the day, is it simple, clear, and repeatable? Because strategic repetition is your friend here. Right. And so you've got to distill it down to its essence. Now, you can use any number of tools or mechanisms. You can use vision. You can use purpose. You can use values. You can use ethos. It's like one thing all of those tools, mechanisms have in common is they 
help you articulate your hopes and dreams. Mm-hmm. So choose one of them, choose two of them, choose three of them, but then define the term is my advice because a lot of smart people disagree on what vision means. And a lot of smart people disagree on what mission or purpose means. So pick the term or terms that you want to use, define those terms, and then share your hopes and dreams over and over and over again, and you'll begin to make progress. And then how about amplify and adapt those two, which will kind of move through, but that's sort sure. of right? The continuum of making sure that this is a consistent culture never ends, right? So amplify, again, we chose that word very intentionally because Mm -hmm. the world's so full of noise and the leader has to get the aspiration above the noise. And you Mm -hmm. may not literally turn up the volume, but you are figuratively trying to get the message of the aspiration to permeate the hearts and minds and culture of your organization. Because I meant to say this a moment ago, and your audience knows this as well. Every organization has a culture. Yeah. Everyone. It's either by design or default. And I've never seen a great culture by default. If you want a great culture, it has to be led there. And it begins with the aspiration, but then you've got to convince people over time that this is real and this is legit and this is going to stand the test of time. Maybe not eternity, but the test of time. You always have the right as the leader to change any of those things. But now we'll put a a caveat. The more you change those things, the less fellowship you're going to have. It's really to your advantage if you can lock into something that's going to transcend the facts. So that's what it means to amplify. And then the adaptation, right? You talked about that and it's working to enhance the culture. And it's the fact that circumstances change, right? We know what our values are. We know what we stand for. We know generally what our vision is here and what we're working toward, but something changed out there. Our customers changed some of their behavior. A new generation of employees is bringing different skills and thoughts to what we're doing here. And we need to implement this in a little bit of a different way. And I like the way you wrote about that too. And you could kind of define it. It's not about losing your foundation. And ultimately, while we always reserve the right, as we come upon new information and new perspectives, it's possible that sometimes a value of ours may change, but not that much, not frequently, but the way in which we express it or utilize it or implement it may change because everything's interactive. It's relationships. It's the people we're working with. It's not just about what we think ourselves, but it's also about how we influence others and how we bring out the best in them. I agree with everything you said. Let me add two things to that. First is a cautionary note when we get to adapt, because here's my experience. And I think, again, your audience would resonate with this. If you have a clear aspiration and you amplify it well, the culture will begin to move toward that aspiration, that you're at a very precarious point in your journey. Because I know I'm a leader, you're a leader, leaders love to get things done. We love to check things off. We love to move on. If you're not careful, and if I'm not careful, if your audience is not careful, you'll read those signs of progress and misinterpret it as success 
and you will not think about adapt because you'll think you're done. You will actually move into protection mode. And when a leader tries to shrink wrap or bubble wrap your culture, mm-hmm. you suffocate it and you kill it. So this whole idea of constantly looking for ways to enhance the culture, what I have learned in the book, when we talk about enhance, we deal with one form of enhancement. And I would argue that it's the most critical and it's the most essential, which is dealing with the toxins. Mm -hmm. Toxins are patterns of unhealthy behavior and unproductive behavior. Like if you see unhealthy attitudes, thinking, actions, you've got to deal with that. And I talk a lot about that in the book because a toxin can become a malady and it can metastasize and kill your organization. And we've got case after case in the book where that happens. But there are two other forms of enhancement. Let's say that many of your listeners, there are no toxins at a critical level within their organization. Well, congratulations, you're not off the hook. You don't get to stop looking for ways to enhance your culture. The second way you can do it is to double down on your strengths. Mm -hmm. If you're really good at something and you intentionally get better, you just strengthened your culture. So that's the second option. The third option gets very little airtime, and that is adding new capabilities. Let me give you an example from the chicken world. About 15 years ago, our senior leaders said, we need to be more innovative as an organization. Now, it's not that we were strangers to innovation. Truett Cathy invented the chicken sandwich. So we had moments of innovation. We had pockets of innovation. We had some people who had tendencies that would lead to innovation. But the enhancement that we needed in our culture, as deemed necessary by our senior leaders, was to be more innovative. So we actually said we have a new aspiration, not a totally new, to your point, we're not losing our foundation. We're adding something to our cultural aspiration. We want to be more innovative. And we began to do things to amplify that. And guess what? A decade later, we're much more innovative as a culture. So that's that third category of adding new capabilities. So if you have begun to move toward your aspiration, congratulations. Are there toxins to attack? Are there strengths to leverage? Or are there new capabilities you need to add? You never stop working on culture. Right. I love that. The second one too, leaning into your strengths, because it's something that particularly when we talk about how culture is experienced at the individual level and how we fit into our companies, that there's so often pressure to strengthen our weaknesses, which a lot of times is important, but Sometimes what gets lost in there is saying you could even strengthen your strengths, right? And how good does that feel? How does that contribute to your feeling of efficacy and competency within that culture? And to say, if I can multiply my ability to execute on the things I'm already good at, maybe the overall value I can contribute is even greater than if I get a little better at the things that are never quite going to be my strengths. Companies need to do all of the above, right? One of the important points you make about how culture is experienced at the individual level is that it's also how the people in there respond to it and how they see it. And that's how we can really grow. Let's talk about, so in the Aspire piece, one of the things that's important for our listeners to understand who haven't seen the book yet is that while these rules 
are here defining the process of establishing and building and maintaining culture, it's made very clear that, that there's no one kind of culture, right? There's no one answer. Every culture is unique and in, in fact needs to be unique, right? Forgery is a crime, especially thinking about so many of the examples are organic and authentic, right? It needs to come about, there's active work to establish it, but it needs to really make sense within the context of your organization, what you do, who you are, and be authentic to you. I think people can probably think of examples of companies who tried to copy at least something of a culture, right? I think it's one of those that we've seen it in technology where certain companies will pop up and they'll try to just directly copy something that Apple does. And everybody points to it and says, they're just trying to copy Apple. <laughs> you know, It's clear right away because people understand what that brand and what that culture looks like. And then they say, this is not, it's inauthentic. It doesn't resonate. And it was no surprise to me along those lines that so many of the examples in this book of CEOs now who have gone about with a culture rebuild have been with those companies for a long time. They came up in different roles. They've been there. They really know that organization. They understand it deeply. It's not necessarily that that's the only way it can be, but it's that institutional knowledge almost and that care to say what's really unique about us. I'm not just coming in and thinking that the answer over here is the answer here, because while that might work for certain business functions, culture is a different thing entirely. So, so I was wondering, if either based on just working on this book or just even in your experience in your career, how you feel like the unique knowledge of a company and what it is leads to better culture building. Those things that you would miss if you hadn't spent the time there seeing what didn't work in the past, what did work, really thinking deeply about, and of course, this is consistent with your career as well, being in the company for a long time. There's things that you may have done really well if you just came to Chick-fil-A today from somewhere else, but there's other things that there's no way you could possibly know it. Yeah. So here's, I guess, my take on that is organizational and institutional knowledge is essential. I don't believe that you necessarily have to spend a career somewhere in order to understand and respond accordingly and appropriately. I'll even give the example of Satya Nadella when he took over from Steve Ballmer at Microsoft. He had been with the company for years. Right. He still went on a listening tour for almost a year before he set his new cultural aspiration. Because my impression is he felt like even though he had institutional knowledge, it was from a different perspective. And he right. wanted to round that out. So I would say, particularly when you get to adapt, and you might argue that if you're moving into an existing culture, then adapt is where you're starting, right? Because there is something already as opposed to being a founder with a startup. And in order to adapt, you must listen well. Listening is always the precursor to strategic, thoughtful, and appropriate adaptation because perhaps you need to take this in stages. Maybe you need to take this in pieces and parts because there's a readiness issue within the organization. So I think listening is what I would want your audience to take away is most critical for leaders who are trying to craft a culture. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that, that's a great way to put it. And that, because it, it, you can be the new person, but you still have to respect 
what you're not knowing, right? I need to listen. I need, even if I'm coming from, for the case of some of our listeners, one school to another school or a district to a district or so on, they're all different. <laughs> they're not the same. There's something that worked for you perfectly last time that won't work here or can work once you establish certain context around it, right? Because you realize it's maybe so different from the way things have done before that just trying to go right ahead with it and say, hey, this works. There's going to be too many people who have opposition or, well, actually the last person tried something similar and it didn't work. And okay, well, how do we do it differently? So listening is key to that point, amplify, right? It's the two sides of that. It's listening, speaking, listening again, speaking, right? Reinforcing, repeating. I told you before we started recording, this one in particular really resonated with me. The way I, when in my consulting work, I describe it as helping kind of leaders and organizations from vision to decision, meaning helping them identify and articulate their values and vision, and then follow through with the right strategic decisions that point back to that. Okay, we have a couple of choices to make here. Which one is consistent with the vision we've set out? Which one is taking us in the right direction? And that can be easy to forget because a lot of times, as we've talked about vision, mission, vision, values, purpose, so on, number one, they're just words until you define what they mean. And two, a lot of times they're just words on a paper. Okay, we wrote a mission and vision a few years ago. I think it's over there somewhere. Right? When we get to this amplify piece, in one of the testimonials for the book, John Acuff wrote, culture is the hardest thing to build and the easiest thing to lose. And it stood out to me. I said, to me, this is a really big inflection point here, particularly when you're talking about growing a company. You know, maybe you're at the earlier stages, you're adding new employees, you have people coming in, they have great talent, great enthusiasm, they love what you're telling them. And then if you're not amplifying it, you're clearly not really consistent in it. It's hmm, maybe they don't really mean that. Maybe that's just what they say because they know it sounds good. How do the best leaders from your observation ensure the amplification, I guess I would say, right? You even reference some leaders in there when you talk to them. How often do you guys talk about the, your culture? And they say, what do you mean every day? But <laughs> how do they really do that? Because while each stage here is critical, this one is a differentiator. Okay, a fantastic question. The leaders who build thriving, dynamic, high-performance cultures invest time strategically and purposefully on culture building. Now, you maybe think, well, don't they have a lot to do? They do have a lot to do, but they see this as such an integral part of their role. It's not extracurricular. It's essential. Now, some leaders miss that. I told this story in the book. I met with a leader, a CEO of a 100-year-old organization, very successful organization. He was so proud of the work they had done to reaffirm their vision, mission, values. And he shared the work with me. And they had done the hard work. They brought in a consultant, had a leadership team. They worked on it for a long time. And where they landed, I thought, from what I knew of the organization, captured their ethos very, very well. And he said, during the course of our interview, he said, now I need to unfortunately excuse myself a little bit early. I've got to go talk to new employees this afternoon. I said, fantastic. I assume you're going to talk to them about what you just shared with me and the values. And he went, huh? No, hadn't thought about that. He said, maybe I should. See, I wasn't asking that leader not to add stuff to your calendar, but as you go, 
when you talk to new employees, when you talk to other employees, when you do one-on-one conversations, when you talk to vendors, when you talk to recruits or prospective employees, all of those are opportunities for you to talk about culture. And then as you go through your day-to-day activities, you have the opportunity to model for people what culture in action looks like. So I think the answer to your question is, it's an ever-present responsibility and opportunity that the best leaders embrace wholeheartedly because they know that culture drives everything. The late Peter Drucker, most of, I don't know if anybody in your audience will know that name, probably the, the greatest management and leadership thinker of the last couple of thousand years. And he said that culture eats strategy for breakfast. It drives everything in the organization. Again, we already said leaders around the world know it's the most important driver they have for performance. So how do you do this amplification thing? You do it as you go. And you're always looking for ways to amplify the aspiration. And that's what brings it to life. That's another piece of how the leader animates culture. They live it. Do you think that for organizations where the leadership does a good job with the amplification, people that don't work there that interact with that company still feel it, right? Especially if you go to more than one different Chick-fil-A restaurant, you notice, okay, there's some consistency here. I'm getting a picture here. We talked about Apple, you go to Apple stores, things like that. There's certain airlines you fly where you just know there's something different and you might not exactly know, but I bet you can make an educated guess and say, I'll bet. Their culture has something to do with this and this, but seems like it would really help that piece as well. Because when it's so consistent internally, then everybody who's having interactions with you is getting that picture. Yeah. It's when you amplify consistently over time that you inculcate those beliefs and those behaviors. You you Mm -hmm. make them part of the experience. And I would agree in so many instances, you know so much about the culture, about what you experience as a customer. Absolutely. Awesome. So the third being adapt, and then we're going to hit a lightning round here in a minute, but let's touch on adapt briefly. And I love you write, it's a little piece, but it's adapt, not react. Then there is a significant difference there. And so I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about what you mean by that phrase. Yeah. I think the ideal is that as much as possible, you are proactive Mm -hmm. as you adapt in anticipation of. One way I've heard it described is you really do want to dig your well before you're thirsty. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes you get it right, sometimes you don't. One example for us as an organization is we started working on improving our drive-through several years ago. Well, that turned into a real strategic advantage for us during COVID because when we shut our drive, we shut our dining rooms down, a whole lot of business had to go through the drive-through. And so the fact that we had started working on that before, now that's not necessarily a cultural example, but it is an example of being proactive and making changes in anticipation of future events. Mm -hmm. And so I think the same is true with culture though. Even the example I shared earlier, when leadership said, hey, I think it'll help us if we can become more innovative across the staff, as opposed to relying on certain teams or certain individuals from time to time to have a moment of inspiration, that was in anticipation of a changing world, a dynamic world. 
Now, all of that to say, there are still times that organizations have to react. But my bias is you'd rather be proactive than reactive whenever possible. And some of the things you can do from a proactive standpoint will help you react better. If you've invested in leadership, as maybe the ultimate example, men and women who understand how to lead well, they can lead in a crisis as well as when things are more normal. So, yeah, just as proactive as possible. We talk a lot about the leader's responsibility and opportunity to see the unseen. That includes seeing obstacles and barriers as well as opportunities that don't yet exist. That's why we challenge leaders. You got to spend enough time in the future to ensure that you have one. Yeah, a great example that's kind of widespread of adapt versus react still ongoing now, I think is the debate over remote work options and remote work culture. There was a lot of companies, I was a part of a couple long before the pandemic ever came along, had already put a lot of thought into various hybrid and remote policies and thinking about how does this help us with talent acquisition, talent retention? What are the actual factors that necessitate when or how often or if people need to be in a certain location? And companies like that were really well prepared, but now there's reactions happening again with others that are saying, well, now we just have to go back to the way it was before. And just because we, for whatever reason, and may or may not be the right move. And it's interesting to think about that with respect to culture, because I've actually, not that long ago, somebody who's in the business media business had posted a poll question on LinkedIn about what company has a better culture, one that's fully in person or one that's fully remote. And my answer was, I have no idea. Those two answers don't give me really any information to be able to say what the culture of that company is. I could see certain advantages to either one, but it's really about what you create. I do think that's something that a lot of people in companies that are grappling with that right now are thinking that that's an answer to culture versus necessarily that they have a culture they're establishing. And then this is a decision that will fit into that culture. Right. Which goes back to adapt. The world changes. We live in a dynamic place and leaders have got to be willing and able to adapt. And again, sometimes proactively, sometimes reactively, but you got to listen well. I would even encourage leaders, and I reference this in the book, go back to your aspiration and figure out how much of in-person work is required to fulfill your aspiration. That should be one of the key drivers in your decision-making, which is why so many companies are at a disadvantage. They don't have a clear aspiration. And if you don't have a clear aspiration, you don't know if remote work's good or bad. You just don't see your people anymore. And so a lot of leaders are freaking out about that. Mark, let's shift to a little lightning round here. I have a handful of questions here that'll lend themselves to fast and amazing answers. One leader you referenced a little earlier, Satya Nadella of Microsoft, who, you know, one of the great success stories of the past decade with what Microsoft's been able to achieve. What was one of the most surprising or insightful things you learned while working on the book? You know, I am so fortunate to have been part of an organization that has taken culture seriously. Many of the leaders that I have had the privilege to work for and with 
may have been unconsciously competent at this thing of culture building. And I'm not saying they weren't intentional, but I found language to describe what I have experienced, which was kind of cool. I mentioned earlier, I always try not to just document my own bias, but it is kind of cool when you figure out what's universally true about something and you say, hey, we've done that and we've done that and we've done that, even though I didn't have language for it. Mm -hmm. So I was pleased to say, hey, I know what we've discovered works because I've had the privilege to work in an organization for four decades that has done these things. Excellent. Is there anything that you found that ineffective leaders try to substitute for culture? A lot of leaders try to delegate culture. Hmm. I don't know if that's exactly what you're asking. I mean, it's great to have human resources involved. And I know in a lot of functions, that's where the responsibility may officially rest. Right. But if senior leaders aren't involved daily with culture, you're going to struggle because people watch the human resources people, but they're watching the senior leaders more. Is there anything that you came across that's part of somebody's culture that seems to be working for them, but you still can't believe that works? Well, sure, 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 sure. And it goes back to the aspiration. Mm -hmm. There are many organizations that have set an aspiration that I would not set, I don't think, if I were in their position. But for any number of reasons, whether it be industry norms or bias or who knows what. So an example would be firms that say, we're going to bring in a lot of talent and we're going to wear them out and 3% of them are going to stick. Right. And we're going to be successful and we're going to be profitable. I've talked to people in those kind of companies and the ones that don't like it leave and the ones that like it stay and thrive because that's the kind of culture that leadership wants. And it tends to attract and people stick who want that kind of culture. But again, that's probably not how I would do it. Maybe coming off the heels of that example, the book is written as an extended metaphor of a game that's what the rules are right it would be the rules of if you're playing this game of culture building and of company building what game might be a great example of the right kind of culture let me say one thing and then i'll answer that question mm -hmm. directly we actually have named some of those unhealthy patterns of behavior when those toxins become mm -hmm. maladies there's a whole chapter on that i hope that your readers won't recognize those yeah. But they may recognize some of those. And then there's a chapter on what do you do about it? So we're not going to go into that. But I didn't want people to think, hey, I'm just telling you how to play the game. Good luck. No, we're actually yeah. telling you, <laughs> here's some things you can do when things get sideways. So again, that's beyond the scope of this conversation. But I wanted to mention that for your readers. Back to the game. Let's pull up half a step. The book actually has a circle on the mm -hmm. front. And we actually grabbed the metaphor from game designers. I don't know if you're familiar with this or not, but they refer to it as the magic circle. And the concept is you as the game designer can create an environment that people will enter in willingly, suspend judgment to some extent. In Monopoly, the banker is not a bank and they're probably right. not qualified to be a banker, but you suspend judgment, right? So you enter willingly, you suspend judgment to the extent necessary, you engage fully, and you might even have a good time. Mm 
That's what game designers are after. And so that was the highest level metaphor. What are the rules that enable an organization to create their own magic circle? And those are the three rules that we've been talking about. Yeah, excellent. And some of our listeners who have worked a little bit with game-based learning and gamification, some of that might sound familiar. There's some really interesting books out there around engagement and what that looks like. And it's the same thing, right? You're trying to create that culture of engagement within a classroom or within a school and within a company. It's about having everybody feel like they're a real part of it. What does measurement look like? You kind of write about measuring the right things and some questions around that. So you can talk a little bit about that piece. Sure. I would take leaders back to the aspiration. The way you measure culture in a professional service firm that's trying to wash out 95% of the people is different than the way you measure culture in a school or a chicken restaurant. We've talked about Satya Nadella several times during this conversation. When he wanted to shift the aspiration from know-it-all to learn-it-all, he set their primary cultural metric as growth mindset the concept pioneered by Carol Dweck. And so if you want to have a culture that is known for a growth mindset, that's a great metric. But if that's not what your aspiration includes, you need a different metric. So I tell leaders, go back to your aspiration and you'll figure out what your metrics are. Excellent. That concludes the lightning round. So this is something that I know will definitely resonate to listeners. And it was sort of a through line I noticed throughout the book. And it certainly relates to this word innovation, right? That we talk about a lot. What does it mean to innovate? I noticed a few great examples of how there was this connection between innovation and inclusion. There was this purpose toward including people and the innovations. And one was the Arizona State University example. They set about this purpose to become a comprehensive public research university measured not by whom it excludes, but by whom it includes and how they succeed. So thinking about how many people can we touch and how are they going to be successful? And their enrollment has skyrocketed. They've innovated a lot in online learning. Microsoft comes up a lot, but I totally loved what their hiring practices have been with this culture shift to screen people in, not out. And meaning, let's look for reasons why people should work here, not why they shouldn't. Let's learn who they are and what they can help us with. Expand our talent pool. Instead of going to the same few universities and hiring a lot of the same people over and over again, let's see who else is out there and what do they know that we don't know and how can they help us grow. To wrap that all together, I was just interested in what you learned about innovation and how innovation can be a tool to involve more people, serve more people, and to make substantive, real change in organizations. Thank you for that. And I don't know how this will land with your audience, because I know there are a lot of creative people in the world, and there are a lot of people that have an innovation bias. But in an organizational setting, innovation still begins with leadership. Leadership, in the best case scenario, encourages, advocates, resources. It is hard to innovate if your organization doesn't want you to innovate. So my encouragement to leaders who want more innovation is make that part of your aspiration. However you choose to articulate that, the example I shared earlier, had we not said more than a decade ago, we want to be more innovative 
we wouldn't be more innovative today. Remember, hope's not a strategy. So mm-hmm. hoping we're going to become more innovative is not going to work. And the fact that I've lived through that transformation for us gives me even more confidence that if you aspire, if you amplify, and if you adapt, you can become more innovative. I've even done it on a micro scale in one of the departments that I led years ago that I went in as the new leader and I felt like they needed more innovation and creativity. And I set that as an aspiration and I shared with them, I'm not saying we are this, I'm saying we're going to work together to become this. And we did training and we did recognition and I tried to model it. and We tried to make heroes out of people, all the things you would do to amplify that aspiration. And then years later, we had a bunch of people who were practicing innovation and creativity as part of their lifestyle, not as a strategy. It had changed them. And so if you want more innovation, it's always best if leadership sanctions that, if leadership encourages that, if leadership sets that as an aspiration, it is within the reach of any organization really, really hard if leaders are anti-innovation. Listeners, one thing I want to make sure to point out for you here, we'll have some links in the show notes below, but if you go to the site leadeveryday.com to purchase the book and purchase it directly through there, there's a variety of bonuses available to you. Knowing that many of you are in positions where you may want to purchase a number of books for your faculty and staff and colleagues, there's a high-performance checklist, a culture rules and action journal, and you can even earn a private virtual session for your team with Mark if you purchase some books from there. So is there anything else you you'd like to point out, Mark, that listeners should check out or anything I've failed to mention? Just one note on what you just said. We've already had 35 schools get the private Zoom call because it only takes 11 books. And so I got a report this morning, 35 schools have already said yes to that, which is great. I'm looking forward to it. That's a pretty good deal, people. Check it out. <laughs> and if you think you and your staff would benefit from this, we've talked about a lot here, but there's a lot more in there. And it is a really great a collaborative read, I think, because it's a collaborative process. Hey, Ross, there is one thing I'll mention. If I can serve any of your listeners in the future, they're welcome to go to the website, but they can also call or text me directly. My cell mm-hmm. number is 678-612-8441. 678-612-8441. And if I can serve any of your listeners, I would consider it my pleasure. Well, yes, we're going to consider that a special prize for everybody who listens all the way to the end. They can write that down. But yeah, please do, listeners, take mark up on that offer. If it's helpful to you, culture in every organization is so critical. We talk about school culture a lot. We talk about company culture. So please do check this out. You're going to find the links below to find the book culture rules and some other resources. Check out those bonuses. Please do subscribe to The Authority for more in-depth author interviews like this one or visit bpodcast.network to learn about all of our shows. Uh, Mark, thanks so much again for being on the show. It's been my pleasure. This has been The Authority Podcast, hosted by Ross Romano, edited by Gage Sanderson. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E.